Well, thank you, Norm. As always, I have to say, you think too highly of me. I know that a whole lot too highly. But I'm, I'm just delighted to be here, as always. It's just really good to see you all and just have, have fellowship. And I'm, I'm thankful for that. And I'm especially thankful for this time where we're seeking to give glory to God for his goodness to you for 35 years. And I'll have a little bit more to say about that later. But that's why we're here, isn't it? To thank the Lord for his blessing to you. It's a remarkable thing. And anyway, let's, let's get started. In 1 Kings, turn, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. And as I said last night, I trust by the Lord's grace, he'll allow me to bring these messages to you in a way that you'll see some of, I think, important threads of truth that are not only found in the Word of God, but just truths that, that I'm attempting in my stumbling way to bring before you and truths that the Lord has always blessed his people with and I know he'll bless us and I'm, I'm thankful for that because it's his word and his, his word is always good and tonight let's, let's consider I, I'd like us to consider that the grace of God revealed to us in his son is of such surpassing excellence that everything else Everything else pales into nothingness in the light of his glorious grace. If he's been so gracious to you and I to reveal that to us. And we find that to be. The greatness of God's glory is found most fully displayed not in his visible works of mighty power, but in his grace. The actions of God's grace may seem so little and so insignificant, but it's in these actions that we find the fullest expression of God, the fullest expression of God's infiniteness, his eternality, his unchangeableness, his perfect wisdom, his power, his holiness and justice, his mercy, his love, his kindness, his goodness, and I could go on and on. All these are found to their fullest in the operations of his grace demonstrated towards us, a miserable group of people. The highest expressions of God's glory, too, are not displayed in his awesome power in the creation of the world, nor in his mighty acts in the material world. No, no, the greatness of God's glory is displayed in the one who grew up as a tender plant out of dry ground. But here's the human tragedy, and we know that, that natural man can't see this glory. They can't see, and neither would you and I, except for God's mercy to us cannot see the glory of God's grace. The light is hidden from their eyes, not, by, not hidden by God, hidden by their own sin. 
And when they look upon the grace of God with natural sight, they see it as such a small and insignificant thing. The greatness, I, just want, I know you know these things, but I just want to remind us tonight that the greatness of the glory of God's grace has never been displayed in the outward things. It is true. The word says that the heavens declare the glory of God. But what is the glory of that creation compared to the glory of the creation in Christ Jesus, the spiritual creation? What I think I read somewhere that the glory of the old creation pales to the new creation like a candle in the noonday sun. And it's true. And the more the Lord blesses us with an understanding of all that Christ accomplished, the more we'll see that. It, this is demonstrated throughout the scriptures in so many ways, and the prevalence of it should tell us something of the importance of this truth. There is no greater illustration, of course, than the response of the world to the Lord Jesus Christ. In terms of the world not seeing the glorious display of God's grace. In, these, in, in their eyes, seemingly small and insignificant things. How did they look upon Christ and his death upon the cross? He, accomplishing the eternal redemption of all of his people. But there was a, abundant testimony given in the Old Testament prophecies and types that this would be so. They should have known. Of course, the great portion in Isaiah 53 comes to mind where we read, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of the dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. That's how, that's how man looks upon this glorious Son of God. The one who is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. He shall grow out before him as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. That's how natural man looks upon the glory of of God in Christ. Men look upon, looked upon him and saw nothing. Nothing that was desirable. Isn't that the whole story of the Gospels? Where was his power? His position? His influence? And his connections? Where was his military leadership and strategic ability to fashion a following, a formidable force like King David did? Isn't this what they were looking for in a Messiah? A king like King David to defeat all of our enemies, especially these Romans, and restore us to his prominence in the world as the people of God, a victorious nation. That's what they were looking for. Where was his kingdom? But even more egregious than that, he didn't even know how to do religion. 
What was this? Going throughout all the land, preaching the kingdom of God with a group of unimportant and unlearned disciples. Eating and drinking with sinners? Without a place to lay his head? That's not how... I mean, you, you go up to Jerusalem where the doctors of the law are. You, you, you sit under these people and here is the seat of power. This is where politics is. And religion was married to it. Wasn't it? I mean, this is how you do religion. You get in, you work your way up to the Sanhedrin. This is the place of power. This is the place of respect. But he, did, he, didn't, he didn't know how to do any of this. Oh, how they despised him. Here was the grace and glory of God in their midst, and they saw him as a little thing. But they didn't heed their own scriptures. And neither do men today. The greatest revelations of the power and glory of God are always in what appear to the natural eye to be nothing. Nothing. Worse than nothing. What does the word tell us? To them it's just foolishness. It's just foolishness. We find this truth illustrated in a powerful way with God's dealings with Elijah. Let's, let's just remember, I'll be looking in chapter 19, but 1 Kings chapter 19, but, but let's just think back. We, we can't read all of this. I'll just bring this to your mind. We all know. We all know this story, don't we? It's, it's a great story. It's a, a dramatic story. And Elijah appears, doesn't he? He appears in Israel out of nowhere, seemingly. And Elijah was a great prophet in the history of Israel. And like his antitype, John the Baptist, he is a voice of, from the wilderness, preaching repentance to a people who had turned away from their God. Through this prophet, the Lord God had demonstrated mighty acts of divine power. It would have seemed that this prophet had the dominion of the heavens in his hands. He prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain. And what happened? It didn't rain for three years and six months. And then in God's appointed time, we see that tremendous event of historic significance where Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal to a contest of worship on Mount Carmel. It's a scene of great dramatic power and spectacle. I mean, you cannot read it without just being awed by what, what happened in that time. Here is a lone man against 450 prophets of Baal. And, and, and we know, they called upon God from morning till the time of the evening sacrifice, we read leaping about their altar, crying out, cutting themselves until the blood gushed out of them. You know, it's not much different than a lot of things we see today with the exclusion of cutting themselves until the blood gushes out. But this is so, so part of false worship, 
crying out to their gods, and we know that, that, that Elijah started to mock them. And we can't go through all those stories. I don't want to detract from, from where we're headed. But here they are, and what, what? They cry out. The blood gushed from them, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. In, in chapter 18 there, what is it? Uh, 20, yeah, 29. When midday was passed, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to the people, look in verse 30 there. I'm back in chapter 18. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, Israel shall be your name. And then Elijah he, he makes this simple prayer. Listen now. Then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to be hold two sayas of seed, and he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, laid it on the wood, and said, Fill your water pots with water, and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And then he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. He said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So the water ran down all around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. And it came to pass at the time of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God, and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. And so here he is. He, he, he does all of these things simply. Builds the altar. Has them pour, pour this water all over it again and again and again. And then he prays. A short prayer. A simple prayer. And at his prayer to God. Elijah utterly defeats the prophets of Baal. At his prayer, the fire of the Lord fell down and consumed the wood, the stones, the dust. Have you, read, have you noticed that? The dust as well consumed the dust and the water in the trench. We focus on the water. It burned up all of the water as well as the timber and the dust. We witness then the bloody execution. Look there in verse 40. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. Think of that. 450 prophets held. And it says Elijah executed them. Can you imagine the blood of 450 men slaughtered there at the brook Kishon? We see then as the story goes on, we see the victorious prophet 
on the top of Mount Carmel, on the summit, bowed to the Lord in prayer as we go on in this chapter. I'm just refreshing your, your memory. And he prayed according to the word of the Lord to bring relief to that parched and starving land. And the heavens broke. They broke with an abundance of rain. And then we see him when the hand of the Lord came upon him. We read that he girded up his loins and ran before the chariot of Ahab 16 miles through the driving storm from Carmel to Jezreel. You can't help but feel the thrill and the exultation of the spirit of Elijah as he runs before the chariot of this evil monarch. Surely the Lord was going to act in in ways as he had before, in mighty signs and wonders, turning Israel in repentance to him. But the next day, where do we find Elijah? We find him running for his life at the threat of a woman. Why? Why? Because Elijah had not yet learned something that I know I haven't learned yet. And probably you haven't learned either that God's ways are not our ways. Elijah did not yet know that the great work of God's grace and the redemption of his people were not found in mighty signs and wonders. That simple. He still had to learn those words that we we echo so often in Isaiah. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down, and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, now listen, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. You see, his thoughts, not being our thoughts, are particularly in reference to what? To the reference of his will being accomplished. We think it's going to be accomplished in one way or should be accomplished in one way. But no, he's going to accomplish it in an entirely different way than we think. But it, the point is, it will be accomplished. Whatever he says will not return to him void. Elijah expected through all these mighty acts of God at Carmel that this would bring about the return of the nation of Israel to the Lord their God. I mean, that's what it sounded like, didn't it? Surely this would bring about a great repentance and a dawning of a new age for the, of faithfulness for the nation of Israel, for the people of God. This, is, this was Elijah's expectation. But he awakens to that message sent from 
Jezebel, you remember, and found that things were still the same. The king, that evil king, still sat on the throne and his evil wife still sought his life and caused Israel to go back after all those false religions. It still was the same. And he was greatly disheartened. Had this great triumph been for nothing, fire had fallen from heaven. The blood of the false prophets had flowed like water. The rain had come like a flood, according to his prayer. And the Lord God had vindicated his name before all the people of Israel. Were all these mighty works for nothing? And Elijah loses heart. He, he just loses heart. I, that's never happened to you, has it? <laughs> and he fled for his life. And he prayed in despair that he might die. He said, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life. Look over now in, in chapter 19. Chapter 19. And so God, in his grace, leads the prophet into the wilderness. And he goes, miraculously sustained for 40 days and 40 nights. Let's just read that in verse 5. There, then he lay and slept under a broom tree, then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there in his head, by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank. And he went in the, in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. Where, the Lord doesn't just take him anywhere, does he? He takes him sustained, miraculously sustained for forty days and forty nights. And where does he end up? At the mountain of God. At Horeb. The place where he'd spoken to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend. That's what we read. That's where he takes him. And it was at this place too that the Lord granted that simple request of Moses, that, that request of ex exquisite excellence that I might see your glory. That was Moses' desire. That was his request. And you remember that the Lord put Moses in the cleft of the rock upon the mountain and he covered him with his hand, the hand of God, to protect him from what? From the glory of God, that burning righteousness and holiness. He covered him with his hand and the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and he passed before him and proclaimed what? The Lord the Lord God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in goodness and truth. This is where the Lord brought him. 
And Elijah enters into a cave upon Mount Horeb. And there's no question, Elijah, all of these things would have been brought to Elijah's mind. He's a prophet of God. He knows the history of Israel and the importance of these events. And these would have been in his mind. And he enters into this cave upon Mount Horeb and the history and significance of this wouldn't have been lost upon him. And it doesn't say, but I think that in all likelihood, this was the very place that the Lord put Moses in the cleft of the rock on that, on that mountain when he passed before him. Don't think that, that this, this was unintended. This is all, all purposed by God to communicate important truth to Elijah. So let's pick up in verse 9 there. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek my life. Now, in this searching question, what are you doing here, Elijah? That's the Lord's call for Elijah to examine his own thoughts. Why are you here? What are your thoughts? What's your understanding? And in doing that, when the Lord gives him the divine response, it'll teach Elijah. It'll teach this despairing prophet things that he needs to know, things that you and I need to know. What are we could ask that question of ourselves so often. When we're in places in life, just sit down and ask yourself, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? To cause us to draw our thoughts and our minds back to what? God's ways and God's thoughts, not our own. I mean, this is where I, I go so wrong all the time. What are you doing here? And you know in his answer we see distrust of God. A hint of bitterness that he's left Elijah alone. That doesn't sound like you or me, does it? Almost as if the cause of God and his covenant had been left upon his shoulders. But how gracious the Lord is with his prophet. He gives no rebuke. The Lord is about to demonstrate to Elijah the mysteries of his grace. Look there in verse 11. Then he said to him, Go out. And stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. We want to see the Almighty God come down like a great wind. 
tear the mountain, smash the rock, shake the earth, send down fire. This, this is what Elijah wanted to see. This is what Elijah wanted visited upon the children of Israel, for they had broken his covenant, torn down his altars, killed his prophet. And it seemed to Elijah that the purpose of God for Israel hung in the balance. They've broken your covenant. And Elijah was jealous for his name. And he wanted God to reveal himself to Israel once again in mighty signs and wonders as, as he'd done when he delivered them out of Egypt, you remember. In Romans 11, we read, listen, in Romans 11, we read that Elijah pleaded against Israel. He pleaded against Israel. And it's so often our way of thinking. We're like the disciples when the Samaritan village refused to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. When James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? You know, we might have expected that from Peter, but John? No, but, you know, really, that's, that's our natural response, isn't it? And here the disciples had witnessed, just before this, they'd witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain. The remarkable things that occurred there. And as Peter said, they'd heard the voice from, I like this, the excellent glory. They, they'd ex just experienced all of that. And now they're going up to Jerusalem, and in their minds, what better way than to enter with a marvelous demonstration of the might and power of God and the judgment of God against those who reject his anointed. That's, what they, that's no doubt what they were thinking. Now, wouldn't that be a triumphant entry? <laughs> were, were they in for a surprise? Here he comes, lowly and riding on a donkey. But he turned. You remember what Christ said. He turned and rebuked them, the disciples. He turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And Elijah is about to learn that the Lord God is above all the God of grace and mercy. We read, The Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the fire, after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. Now, that may seem a little confusing because the wind, well, it was of the Lord. We know that, right? He commanded it. It came according to his will and purpose and tore the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces. And the same was true of the earthquake. It was according to his will and his purpose. It 
came at his command in the fire. But the word of the Lord says he, was, he wasn't in these things. Why? Because his grace and purpose of redemption are not found in these things. But more than that, the presence of the Lord God himself is not found in these things. You hear that? The presence of the Lord God himself is not found in these things. And that's what we're concerned with, isn't it? That's what we're interested in, to know God, to be in his presence with acceptance. That's all that matters. And then, what do we read? A gentle stillness, a delicate, literally, it's a, a delicate whispering voice. More awesome than 10,000 terrible storms or the quaking of the foundations of the whole earth or a consuming fire. This is the word from the mouth of God. The voice of God. Elijah doesn't need to be told where the Lord is, is to be found, does he? Elijah's in the presence of the Almighty. And this is the voice of God speaking to him. It doesn't need volume, does it? God's purpose, and, and we know the rest of the story, he tells Elijah, his purpose is never in jeopardy. He has a people, everyone whom he has chosen in eternity and set his love upon in Israel is there. 7,000, he's reserved them. They haven't bowed the knee to Baal. The purpose of God there in Romans, what do we read? The purpose of God according to election will stand. It will be accomplished. The Lord will be found by his covenant people, everyone. And he'll be found not upon the wings of the wind with darkness canopies around him, but he'll be found in the gentle stillness of grace. Well, can there be any doubt, any doubt, that this still small voice typifies the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? Turn over to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. We've got to move along here quickly. Isaiah chapter 40. And there we read, there we read of another prophet crying in the wilderness, another Elijah, another Elijah, similar but different. Isaiah chapter 40, and let's read a few of these verses which speak of, of the ministry of the forerunner of Christ, the forerunner of the Messiah. In verse 3, here, here, here it is, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. You see, that's what we're interested in, isn't it? That's, that's what matters. That's what is of deepest concern <laughs> 
That's what Moses longed to see, isn't it? Show me thy glory. Well, his glory is going to be revealed. And here's his message. Look in verse 9. Skip down there to verse 9. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountains. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. If anything, Elijah is a forerunner. That was one of his primary ministries, wasn't it? To say, as Christ comes, Behold your God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we could look in John 3. And I intended to, but we need to move along. But in John 3, we have all the, just in a few verses, we have all these things spoken by John the Baptist with respect to Christ. We read, Behold the Son of God. Behold the one whom God loves. Behold the one who comes from above and is above all. Behold the one whom God has given the Spirit without measure. Behold the one who speaks the words of God. All of that, all of that, John preached and prophesied with respect to Christ and and much more. Behold your God. Listen, listen to his still small voice. Behold your God. That that was the work of John the Baptist. Now turn over to John chapter 11. Keep your place here in in, uh, Isaiah 40. We'll come back and finish there. Isaiah 40. But turn over to John chapter 11 and I want you to see something that I think is remarkable. John 11 and chapter 2. John 11 and verse 2, rather. John 11. No, not John 11. Uh, Where is it? Luke? Must be Luke 11, where where, uh, John sends... uh, sends the disciples to Jesus... Let's see. Well, let, let me just read these to you. Uh, John, John. I've written them down here and must have marked the wrong. Let's see. Well, let me just read this. So when, when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do you look for another? You remember that, don't you? And the parables are unmistakable, aren't they? Here we have the prophet of God, John the Baptist, and he's imprisoned by a wicked king who finds him troublesome. And the king is married to an evil woman who seeks the life of the prophet. 
And in John the Baptist's case, she was successful, wasn't she? We could say here is another Jezebel, another Elijah, but another king and another Jezebel. And like Elijah, the faith of John fails. And from prison, he sends word to Jesus. Are, are you the coming one? Are you the coming one? Or are we, do we look for another? And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Now listen to the words of Jesus concerning this prophet, John the Baptist. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. What's he saying? He's saying, you, you think John and his ministry were of little significance, do you? What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Were you looking for someone great in the eyes of men? Were you looking for someone of noble birth? Were you looking for spectacular signs and wonders? He continues, but what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but did you know that John the Baptist didn't perform a single miracle? Not one. Not one. He was the forerunner of Christ to prepare his way. Not one miracle. Here's the testimony of Jesus regarding John. Assuredly, he says, he continues, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist. That was the testimony of the Lord with regard to this prophet. And then in, verse, in the following verse, he says, And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He tells them plainly, doesn't he? He is the Elijah who is to come, the forerunner, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, look back there in Isaiah 40, and we'll finish up there. Here we have this prophecy of the glorious message of grace, which is to sound forth from this Elijah who is to come. Look in verse 10. Again, we can't read it all, but we read, Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. Will he come? How will he come? Will he come with a strong hand like a great and strong wind and tear away this rebellious nation like rubble? 
Will he come with a strong hand to shake the foundations of the earth? Will he come sending down fire upon these disobedient people? No, no. He comes with good tidings. Good tidings. How does this chapter start? Comfort. Yes, comfort my people, says the Lord. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended. Listen to this. That her iniquity is pardoned. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Behold your God. He's come with a strong hand to finish the iniquity. To finish the transgression. To make an end of sins. To make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in an everlasting righteousness. Now listen. 35 years, 35 years in the Dalles. And we've come together to thank the Lord for what he's done here. Think, I want you to think now, just a few things. He chose you, this group of believers in the Dalles. He chose you before you ever were, before the world began, from eternity. He loved you with an everlasting love. And he said, he said, God said, I have loved you with an everlasting love and with loving kindness I will draw you. And that's what he's done for each one of you, hasn't he? He sent his son, his only son, the son of his love, the one in whom he delighted, who was in his bosom, to bear the unimaginable horrors of the curse of sin for you. He's justified you, clothing you in that glorious righteousness of his son. Washing you in the blood of his atonement. And he's qualified you to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He sent his spirit to deliver you from the power of darkness and translate you into the kingdom of his son, the son of his love. You've been born again by God and, and you remember that day when you opened your eyes in that kingdom of God, in the light. And what did you see? The glory of God in Christ. This is what God has done for you here in the Dells. He's pardoned all your iniquity, forgiven your transgressions and sins. 
accepted you in the Beloved, and he's brought you into fellowship. Those glorious passages in 1 John accepted you into fellowship so that you have fellowship with the Father and with his Son and with one another and with all the people of God. And he's gathered you as his people, as his saints in the Dalles. Think of that. His saints in the Dalles. And he sent you a faithful gospel minister for all these years to care for your souls, to preach Christ to you, the glory of God. Isn't that what the disciples said? We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that's what's been, that's what's God, what God has done for you. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, his own special people. Think of that. Is this a small thing? To man it is, but not to God, not to God. He's made you to lie down in the green pastures of his work of redemption. He's revealed to you the gospel, to feast upon him the bread of life. No, no, this is not a small thing. This is not a small thing. And you rest in hope beside the still waters of his grace. And look there in verse 11. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather them with his own arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. He gathers each of you in his arms. He carries you in his heart and in his bosom. He gently leads you into the path of life, into the presence of the Lord, where there's fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Surely our voices then, when we consider these things, not just you, but me and every one of the Lord's people, when we consider these things and you know, I could go on all night, couldn't I? Of all the things that God has done for you and for me. Surely we'll raise our voice with David and with the whole host of the Lord's people and in harmony and adoration and praise to our Lord God, we can sing with David, your gentleness has made me great. Amen.